0: Welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the shock observer edition. My name is Brent Whitmire, I'm an editorial and features writer, and I'm here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, September 25th. It's been a grab bag of a week here in the Press Gallery. We had a French language and federal leaders debate last night. On Sunday, Rachel Notley will be off east to talk to power brokers in Toronto, Montreal, and New York. And we've heard additional shock-absorbing hints about the provincial budget that will coincidentally arrive sometime after October 19th. We'll talk about all that, plus those pesky 7.25% raises. As always in the press gallery, I promise we'll try to keep inflation to a minimum. Here in the studio, before they approve a round of raises for their bureaucratic underlings, we have city columnist Paula Simons. We do not have city columnist She'll be here momentarily. (laughs) We have Provincial Affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim.
1: Hello, good morning.
0: And Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. You all look fantastic, especially Paula. Sorry, Paula's not here. (laughs) We'll start here in Alberta because uh, I wanted to get Paula's take on the federal leaders debate, but we'll come back to that later. But back here in Alberta, we've had a bit more of the NDP's budgetary burlesque, this seemingly never-ending series of revelations about what will come shortly after the federal election. Earlier this week, uh, Notley called it a shock observer budget. Miriam, how bad is the shock?
1: We already know that obviously oil prices have cratered. The economy is slowing. Jobs are being shed in the oil patch. We're hearing about that, it seems, almost weekly now. And the the budget deficit could grow to about 6.5 billion. Not least point with that sort of statement calling it a shock absorber is that her argument was and she sort of painted herself as as the opposite of Brian Jean, the Wild Rose leader, saying that at a time when the economy is already shedding jobs, when people are already struggling, the budget needs to be the shock absorber. The budget needs to be able to pro- provide some stimulus, really hinting pretty strongly at the fact that there's going to be some uh, major infrastructure investments and we know that obviously the government has tapped David Dodge, the former bank Bank of Canada governor to commission a report um, sort of helping the government figure out its capital plan priorities, which is uh, completed now. We should be hearing about what is in that report pretty soon once the budget is released, as you say, after the federal election, after the after the legislative session opens on the 26th of October. But certainly her, her point is that she wants to be able to provide people with jobs, provide people with something uh, to turn to, rather than, as she says, laying off uh, public sector workers, as uh, she says the Wild Rose would do.
2: I've been told this This will not be a major shift from the previous budget. It's going to be more spending on infrastructure, absolutely. There's going to be more tinkering as opposed to a brand-new, huge NDP budget. We'll see that next March when they actually have the budget at the correct time. So you're thinking, on the one hand, if it's going to be a stand-pat budget in many ways, and I was told it's going to be like that, then where is it? Well, they're holding it off until after the federal election, of course, cause it's going to be a $6.5 billion deficit, we think. We have been seeing the hints about more spending, and the fact they brought in David Dodge, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, is an indication as well. You call it a striptease. It's a good analogy because...
1: He called it a burlesque. <laughs> it's a burlesque. That, You well, made it a fun. little bit more vivid, actually, <laughs> Graham.
2: There you go. See where my mind is this morning. <laughs> it's friday (laughs) okay how about the the, um dance of a thousand bales (laughs) yeah i like that (laughs) that there we go or pg david dodge has been writing for the last year or so about the time to spend on infrastructure is now Mm -hmm. so yes they're going to go big on infrastructure and of course there's, there's a good and bad to that and that is of course people will be happy getting new skills built they're going to have the opposition all over them in terms of the the size of the deficit. And that's going to be a real problem for them, not this year, but moving forward. And
1: not just the deficit, but also the debt. They're already talking about how the NDP is piling on more debt. I mean, earlier this summer, uh, Cabinet authorized an additional uh, $6 billion in debt if it's needed. That doesn't mean that that has been spent, but it's debt that they can use if they want it. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, this is the Wild Roses sort of wheelhouse, right? This is the kind of thing that, that they are really good at criticizing the government for. And so we're going to be hearing a lot of that word, debt, over the next uh, several weeks, and it's going to ramp up right up to the budget for sure.
0: At the Alberta Municip- Urban Municipalities Association uh, meetings this week, the annual conference, Notley promised to pour money into shovel-ready projects. We talked about David Dodge and things like that, but she also talked about how this is not going to be a much of a variation on the Prentice's plans, you know, $29.5 billions over over five years. Is she doing a little shock-absorbing of her own?
2: Yes. Back to the budget that was brought down never passed by Prentice back in March. He was looking at a 5 billion dollar deficit. He was raising taxes on the wealthy. He was also raising taxes on things like user fees um, the, the sin taxes, you know. He was raising taxes all over the place. I guess they're pointing back to the Prentice budget saying, "Look, there were things in there that we're just following through." And maybe we're spending a bit more on, on infrastructure. We'll see the actual number, of course, in October. But the point is, this is not a huge divergence from the old PC government. And I guess she's trying to say to people, look at one, as she said already, calm down.
0: So do you think uh, Brian Jean is being a little inflammatory with the uh, socialist inspired talk?
3: Well, I uh, imagine Brian Jean would have said that Jim Prentice was socialist inspired, too.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he called him a liberal, you know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, of you know, the, the course, this is politics, and, and you're going to have the Wild Rose saying the NDP is way too far left, and it plays to a certain audience. During the by-election, I guess he used the word the communist, I think, in one of the uh, Chinese-language um, brochures in um, in the by-election <laughs> in Calgary. Cause,
3: yes, because that wouldn't I mean. be a dog whistle, no.
2: <laughs> and, and So you have, of course, the Wild Rose playing to an audience, saying, my goodness, we're moving left, we're moving to the socialist state now. And, of course, it's, as an exaggeration, it's, it's wrong, because you go back and look at the the PCs where they were headed and it's, it's a very similar direction and the NDP is actually maybe tweaking that budget as opposed to making major changes.
3: It, it, it helps that Stephen Harper is making those same noises on the federal front all the time. In Alberta especially.
1: And, and just to go back to the budget too, we did we did get some hints about what the final numbers will sort of look like. We know that there's going to be a 2% increase in uh, some of those core ministries, education, human services. Health is going to look like a probably a 5% increase and it looks like they're trying to hold the line on the remaining departments. So what that looks like in terms of where funding is shifted from and, and where it's it's funneled into will be will be interesting to see, but uh, certainly they have really stayed on that sort of commitment of propping up healthcare, education, and those human services
0: programs. So we were speaking about the dance of a thousand veils. So, so earlier this week, they also did a couple things. They added $15 million to Alberta's desperately underfunded uh, women's shelters. And last week we had $10 million to family and social programs, uh, relatively small potatoes as far as the provincial budget goes. But are these sort of ways of kind of doing more of that shock absorbing or, or is this uh, counteracting the federal narrative or what what's going on here? I, I
1: think it could be a bit of that shock absorbing, um, especially when you think about when the economy sort of dips. We hear about things like social issues. Women seek out shelters more often. You require more community programs, and the people who are the recipients of these fundings have talked about the need for this kind of funding injection for years.
0: So you could possibly attribute the recent rise in the federal Liberal Party's fortunes to these promises of infrastructure spending. Uh, do you think this message will continue to work here? Or is there is there a danger of this being just uh, um, becoming that sort of socialist nightmare that uh, Brian Jean is, is forecasting? It
2: is interesting. You mentioned the Liberal leader, uh, Trudeau, a few weeks ago came out and said, I'll start spending money, run a $10 billion a year deficit. It's interesting because that's the kind of message we heard from the NDP, a very successful uh, campaign, of course, with Notley back in uh, in April, May. And it's interesting to see the Liberal leader take that point because he's then set himself apart from the NDP. But will it play in the federal election? We're seeing polls saying people like it, people like that message. They just don't think that Trudeau may be the one to deliver it because he's he's not ready. <laughs> and, and, and that campaign by the Conservatives has been very effective.
3: Trudeau succeeds in changing the national narrative about deficits, which, you know, post-Preston Manning deficits were, you know, bad, 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 even though Harper ran plenty of them, it may give, actually, Notley more wiggle room. If you change the cultural acceptance of the idea of running deficits, it may, ironically, Trudeau may give her a little more room to maneuver, but you know this is all really contingent on the price of oil. The price of oil stays low for the next four years. They're hooped. That's that's how that goes. <laughs> and there's nothing that Rachel Notley or Brian Jean or anyone in Alberta can do about any of that.
0: Uh, apart from going to Washington, we'll uh, go. maybe. Uh, <laughs> ra- yeah. yeah, that's yeah, not that's, gonna, that's,
3: that's not going to change the <laughs> price. That's of really going to help, right?
0: <laughs> So, um, Graham, you wrote a column this, this week, uh, yesterday, about Rachel Notley heading right. east this Sunday on her itinerary, um, and it's highly unorthodox for her to to be skipping out on D.C.
2: Yeah, normally one of the first things they do is make a, a pilgrimage to Washington, <laughs> D.C. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that a passage
1: for Alberta premiers. And I've been
2: on these trips before, and, you know, nothing really gets done. They sometimes have a really hard time getting in to meet Washington leaders. Mm-hmm. I've... Been there before with Ralph Klein back in the day um, where one person turned up at one of the meetings for Klein. It was this big celebration, a big dinner party, cocktail party at the Canadian Embassy put on, and I think one or two U.S. people, uh, senators, came out, and that was it. These trips are more about waving the flag to people back home to say, yes, the premier is in Washington fighting for Alberta, but those trips don't reopen the border during mad cow they don't sell one more plank of you know, lumber. They don't change the pipeline debate. And so I think that Notley has recognized this and is going to go to Toronto and Montreal. And I think her, and also New York, but she's talking to the Wall Street crowd there about investing uh, in the oil sands as opposed to pipelines. But I think what we're seeing here is she's made more a focus on building relationships with other premiers in Canada to get pipelines built east-west as opposed to this futile attempt to try and influence US politics to get pipelines going south.
3: And I mean, American politics right now, <coughs> I mean, apart from the fact that you know, you've got the pope and, and the leader of China in Washington this week, so that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of competition <laughs> for headlines. I mean, they're convulsed already in their own federal election campaign. Nobody's thinking about When polled by Bloomberg this week, 41% of Americans favor building a brick-and-mortar wall along the Canadian-U.S. border. That's high time. It's high time. It's not that it's not important that we have relations with the United States. It's just that we have to be realistic. A province of 4 million people, the idea that when we show up in Washington, senators are going to rush to meet with us is deluded.
0: Do you think Notley is deluded to think she can get something from Kathleen Wynne in Ontario?
3: I don't know that
1: she's trying to get anything necessarily, but I think as Graham said earlier, she's really working hard to have these sort of collegial, sort of cordial meetings with um, premiers across the country. And she's made reference to that, actually, in her few speaking engagements this week, talking about having, quote-unquote, drama-free negotiations and discussions with other premiers in Canada to get Alberta's oil to Tidewater. I think that that's a a reference to former Premier Redford and Christy Clark's, quote-unquote, Frost. (laughs) Uh, relationship uh, when they were talking about the Northern Gateway pipeline.
2: And Notley has done a good job, actually, at the Premier's conference in July. She helped get the Canadian Energy Strategy approved. Now, of course, this was actually begun by Redford. Uh, The strategy itself is not a, it's a pretty fuzzy document. You know, it's an an aspirational, let's help each other out getting our energy to market. But at least they signed on to it. Uh, Brad Wall was sort of the, the one that caused some problems, um, you know, at that um, convention or the Premier's Conference uh, in July uh, by, you know, implying that we're letting uh, Ontario and Quebec dictate our pipeline policy. But having said that, Notley knows she's got to deal with the, with the provinces. Even though the federal government is the one that actually makes the final decision on pipelines, you've got to deal with the provinces because they can make life impossible. in terms of pipelines.
3: As we saw in the French language debate last night, this is not an easy sell in Quebec. I mean, Gilles Duceppe somehow managed to conflate the Energy East pipeline with Lac Megantic and implied that if they had Energy East, there would be trains blowing up all over Quebec,
2: which (laughs) is, of course,
3: backwards, because if you had more pipelines, you'd have fewer trains. But, I mean, they were asked a direct question by the the French language moderator, you know, which would you rather have, pipelines or trains, to which Gilles Duceppe started answering a question about the regulation of the meat industry <laughs> uh,
1: you know so Did we also talk about gas prices and
3: yeah and but you know she for not only I mean Toronto is a hard enough sell Montreal and Quebec City are perhaps even harder
0: yesterday we received a bit of flip-flopping over races for legislative officers uh, an NDP committee re- approved a raise of 7.25 uh, percent for officers like the Auditor General the Privacy Commissioner uh, and various others Obviously, pay raises always cause grumbling, even at the best of economic times. Is this a bit of an inexperience showing its head? A
1: hundred percent, yes, I would say. Um, and uh, I would say that because it's an all-party committee. It is dominated by NDP MLAs, all of whom are backbenchers. That's who participates in legislative committees. It's not ministers. It's backbenchers. So people who typically don't have a lot of authority and uh, don't have as much experience, sort of in terms of how things might look optically and 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 that sort of thing. So certainly, I mean the Wild Rose members on this committee and the one PC member on the committee were trying to discourage the rest of the committee from voting um, the seven and a quarter raise which would amount in some cases to a $15,000 raise for some of these uh, independent officers of the legislature arguments of whether or not that is warranted aside Mm -hmm. the optics were less than ideal and so very quickly the Wild Rose lit their hair on fire put out a news (laughs) release saying screaming from the rafters about this and and sort of in addition. Addition to it, there was this junket that had been approved for members of this committee to go to a conference in Boston at the Fairmont in Boston in December. It would have come at quite a, quite a cost. And within hours, the chair of that committee, uh, NDP MLA Denise Willard, had said that they were going to call back the meeting to reconsider the decision. And it really reminded me of and not to not to suggest that there is any sort of uh, premier hand behind any of this.
2: Right, I don't know right. that,
1: but it really reminded me of the situation earlier this year when the legislative committee, same committee, in fact, voted to give the Auditor General a $500,000 boost to his budget. And then Premier Prentice the next day came out at a press conference and said, uh, actually, our our finances aren't so good right now, so that's not going to happen.
3: Yeah. See, this is two different separate mess ups yes. for the NDP at the same time. In the first place, I think a lot of people feel that the... You know, the child and youth advocate and the privacy commissioner need increases to their operating budgets. The second mistake is, as Maryam correctly points out, when Prentice did that, we all lit our hair on fire. I think Graham and I both wrote columns. and uh, But apparently, when it's an NDP-led committee, we, we do not want to be guilty of a double standard here. I mean, it it is the same problem.
1: Just less brazen, I would say. I mean, we haven't, there was no press conference where a premier stood up and said that decision is going to be overturned. <laughs> you know, there there was a bit more subtle. I mean, I, I, I would have been interested to see the <laughs> behind the scenes scramble after they realized what was going on and on what was supposed to be a good news day for the NDP. You know, they were talking about infrastructure and, and, and making nice with all the municipalities and then this.
3: It's not so much that it's like an outrageous thing. It just makes them look incompetent. When they do things like this they make it very, very easy for the opposition. And this is, this, these are, you know, two mistakes that neither of them ever should have happened. And one hopes that this will be an important learning opportunity. That committee chair
1: really got a baptism by fire yesterday because that was the first meeting of that committee. Huh. They, they, they started with things like, how to participate by telephone. <laughs> <laughs> and ended and with with the, with the group raises with the <laughs> with the with having tech recall the meeting to reconsider this decision. Yeah. I mean, it was quite the day for that committee.
0: It was pretty interesting to me to see that uh, that uh, Premier Notley also put out what what her trip would cost. She she said okay, our, our trip's going to cost $24,000. So this is like she is aware of yeah. the, the political potential for for trips.
1: Absolutely. And um, Tory premiers used to do that too. What what I found interesting though is that um not Lee's itinerary and the uh, estimated cost for her her speaking tour next week also included the cost for security. No other Tory premier as far as I am aware has included the cost of that. Uh, within the actual trip uh, budget So that I would like to say Credit where credit's due That's They've increased the transparency yes. in that regard there, there was really no reason why it needed to be parsed out separately, and I'm glad that they've added that into the overall cost. And I would also like to point out that at the legislative offices committee yesterday, there was some other news that happened. The child advocate uh, had his funding restored. The two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars that that committee had previously yes. denied to him was yes. restored yesterday. So they did boost his office budget. They also boosted the ethics commissioner's office budget by two hundred thousand to upgrade the registry lobby, uh, the lobbyist registry website, which is horrifically out of date if, if anyone's ever used it they are well aware of that fact and so they're going to finally be able to update that system
3: you see and those are the sorts of things that i don't think we ought to begrudge more money for the child and youth advocate to investigate the deaths of children in care good more money for a trip to boston for a bunch of backbench mlas bad
0: circling back to paula was talking about the french language debate my second language is Pig Latin, so unfortunately I missed it. But uh, I saw I there saw... was
1: an excellent translation. Oh God, I got I got to tip my hat to those translators. They really tried hard to give us a sense of that debate, even to the point where everyone was talking over each other and they were trying to talk over each other too. I really appreciate that. And the most
3: brilliant subversive thing is that they cast translators who matched the speaking styles. Yes. Hmm. So the Justin, Justin, Trudeau, the Justin translator, Trudeau translator yes. had a high voice that sometimes got a little bit whiny. The, the, as to it too and, though and, I, and, I was amazed and the uh, <laughs> the the Stephen Harper translator talked like, uh, robot. <laughs> it was it incredible because I
1: was a little bit worried at first that when I turned it on I wasn't going to be able to go about my business at home as I normally would listening to a debate in the background because it was translated and I wouldn't know who was speaking but very quickly I realized I was able to discern it because they had cast these translators so well so I just and wanted to give my props to yes, them.
3: Yes, I listened to the first half of the debate in French in my car and when I got home for my husband's sake we had to switch to the English language so it was interesting to hear it both ways. Mm-hmm.
0: Qui a gagné, Paula? Or qui a perdu? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we,
1: we, we can really tell that your second language is not French. That's the Elizabeth
3: May school of French speaking. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. I thought Mulcair had his best debate, he had a very strong closing in particular. I think Harper always surprises with the quality of his French. I mean, his accent is atrocious, but his ability to actually carry on a live debate in French has gotten better and better over time. And he's more animated when he speaks French than when he speaks English, which is amusing in and of itself. He did all right. Trudeau, some of the English language press are saying that he won the debate. In Quebec, not so much. So I think it all very depends, it all depends very much on the listener and the Rorschach ink blot that you take. To the debate to start with. But I'll tell you what was great about last night's debate. It's the only time, I think, that we'll see all of the leaders, including Gilles Duceppe and Elizabeth May, on one stage at one time with professional CBC production values so that, you know, you had good moderation, you had good lighting, you had... uh, and a good range of topics. It wasn't like the very stilted economic debate, which was so narrowly cast. Uh, They were asked about everything from, as Miriam says, the price of gasoline to, you know, what should Canada's position be with trade with Saudi Arabia?
0: It's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week we share something we've enjoyed often, but not always with a political connection. Paula.
3: I am going to suggest that people should read the full text of Pope Francis's address to the US Congress, which I thought was beautiful and provocative and brave and intriguing. I think for all of us who are intrigued by the uh, complexities and sometimes the contradictions in Pope Francis's teachings, it's a really, really interesting read and a really interesting way of calling out your hosts ever so politely, (laughs) but ever so effectively. It's a really interesting piece to read.
0: Miriam.
1: Mine is uh, from Foreign Policy. It's an incredible, incredible long read about the massacre at the Westgate Mall in Kenya two years ago. It's called Close Your Eyes and Pretend to be Dead. What Really Happened Two Years Ago in the Bloody Attack on Nairobi's Westgate Mall? It's by Tristan McConnell. It's uh, published this week. I realized I had absolutely no idea what had actually happened during that attack. Basically, the people who came to the rescue of all of those people who were hiding for their lives in that mall were a sort of small community, a group of people from the community who were licensed gun holders and were sort of like a a band of of community protectors who ran into the mall to uh, try to hunt out these terrorists who had attacked the mall. They believed that there was only three of them there, that they died in the mall, and that it was in fact kenyan authorities who went into the mall afterwards uh looting and destroying shops um shooting a rocket propelled grenade into the mall which eventually caused the collapse that then buried these three attackers i mean it was a really really fascinating read that pieced together by interviews with survivors and witnesses
2: graham what's your good stuff for the week the mclean's article recent one by our old colleague a former colleague rather jason markasoff on the ndp government Really nicely written. If you want to know what's actually happening in a nice capsule of what's going on with the Alberta government, it's a really good piece. It talks about Notley going to the Folk Fest. It talks about uh, various ministries, Shannon Phillips, what's happening with the environment. So, Maclean's Magazine, recent edition, Jason Markasoff on the NDP government. It's a good piece.
0: Uh, my pick this week is the Ann Kingston piece in McLean's uh, Vanishing Canada on the so-called war on data and loss of information. First, there was the demise of the long-form census. The TRC had to go to court to get documents, and we've heard about the closing of libraries. Jane Urquhart couldn't even get her own papers that she donated to the Library and Archives Canada. So it's a fascinating, disturbing read about the state of public information in our country. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion, or on the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should check out the journal's Facebook page. Thank you, Paula, Miriam, and Graham for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next time. We'll be, we'll be discussing the much-anticipated pig Latin debate. You know I'll be listening carefully. That's all for now from Press Gallery. Thanks for listening.